Cold open. I'm gonna start a new thing where, like you, I just say duh instead of everything. Oh man, it makes everything ten times funnier. I everything I, sounds very cool when you say it like that. You know, when I used to tour with Polly Shore in like '03, mm-hmm. like we were doing this kind of like post 9/11 circuit around like Upper New Jersey, uh, Lower Boston, and like the New York area. Mm-hmm. That was like basically the focus of my hour and a half long sets. As I would just be like, uh, duh, like mayor is gay or whatever and like people would just eat that shit up my friend matched with him on one of the apps that's very funny that you mentioned that because i i met up with a buddy my my uh this guy drew i know for coffee this morning i told you about this i met mm. up with this guy for coffee this morning and uh and his girlfriend's there and so, you know we're talking we're talking about the Medi money thing because drew also used to have Eddie money's number i've talked about that on the show before I used to prank call him um and I mentioned I had Polly Shore's number too. And this girl's mm. like, yeah, Polly Shore once like hit on me in it, like just in oh, yeah. public once. Oh, I And that tracks with stories. dozens of women. Oh, I yeah. guess Polly Shore just goes up to girls as like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me get a piece. Yeah. I mean, you know what? I bet it works sometimes. So if it worked once, you got to try it again. And then, you know, if it worked once in 10, you got to try it. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you have it, listen, if you're listening to the show and you have. Success. If Pauly Shore has successfully hooked up oh, with yeah. you, hit the DMs. Absolutely hit the DMs. Not because I think that if he, no, because we want to know the story. Yeah, I just want to know the story. Okay, yeah. To be clear, I saw him once. Hey, what's up? It's Wacky Brace, Hong Kong. <laughs> Don't do the Hong Kong, dude. I, when we when we record for this long, I like. I know. I really Wait, remember when that it. crazy lady on the internet said that Hong Kong was a Hitler thing? Yeah, yeah. But like, she was right. Like when I like, it is. It is. <laughs> He was that, the, no, but that's what you do. He it's was not the that greatest, it actually is. But. He was the greatest clown in history, <laughs> I think. No, he was a joker. Oh, oh, I was like, are you defending Hitler? But I realized, of course, you're defending clowns. Yeah. Um, Hello, everyone. Hi, I'm Bryce. I'm Liz. We are, of course... Joined by, wait, I have to, wait, 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 too long a pause. We're, no, I was doing that to make you feel uncomfortable. You need to make space. I'm naked. For, <laughs> I really wish you would put some pants on. We're joined by producer Young Chomsky. I don't feel uncomfortable at all, baby. Yeah. Our um, podcast is called Chew As on. usual, it's the woman who feels uncomfortable, which means that according to men's uh, arithmetic, no one feels uncomfortable. Uh, call me Young Tubin. Um, you know, you know reference. Well, anyways, t- Jeffrey Tubin. Anyway, didn't the, he get fired? I don't want to talk about it. We are doing Just another JFK episode. Yeah, now we've made it. We're finally here. The end of the line for Jack Kennedy. <laughs> But not for this for not for this series. Yeah. So we are no. talking today, uh, of course, with our illustrious guests Ben and Aaron about the incident in Dealey Plaza, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, which and. happens to be a good song by the Australian band The New Race. Uh, and also I think the Misfits wrote a song about it. And I think Bob it's Dylan. great that you finally are ready to come out to let everyone know that you were there. Mm-hmm. I was I'm a very old. 
but yeah, it's it's a it's a rollicking episode. We talk about well, you fucking. I'm not gonna tell you what we talk. We talk about it in the episode. Fucking listen to it. It starts now. Finally, we have arrived. Our motorcade has started. Our loyal Secret Service agents have mostly not been deployed. Our good friends in the Dallas Police Department are really, you know, just looking for any threat anywhere. All the good people at the Texas Book Depository at work. Uh, and just a beautiful grassy knoll ahead of us. Today is a day truly nothing can go wrong. Joining me in my presidential limo, as usual, of course, is Liz. But uh, we have with us independent researcher who is driving, and uh, excuse me, I should say his name, Ben, uh, who is driving. You sorry, I usually don't say the name of the you know the driver, but in this case, you know, I'll, I will. Uh, and then, of course, sitting next to my beautiful wife, Liz, who I'm married to and have hey. been for several years as I'm the governor of Texas, and she is the first lady of Texas. We have Aaron Good, who earned his PhD writing about U.S. hegemony, elite criminality, and the deep state dissertation published soon by Skyhorse. At this point, for the love of God, we should have a link in the description for it. If not, for those of you in future generations who look back on this episode, you'll be confused by this part, because we will. Um... Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome to Dealey. Uh, we are talking about the assassination today, uh, which is one of the parts that, it, ironically, throughout all of this, I think gets the most attention as like the conspiracy angle. Because I think a lot of the conspiracy parts to it, I'm doing little air quotes here, rests on this, right? Because, I mean, I, I actually don't think this is the case, but I, I, I think for a lot of people, it's like, well, if there was one shooter, no conspiracy. If there was two shooters, that means conspiracy. And definitionally, I mean, two people involved in a shooting, that is literally a conspiracy. I don't think there just being one shooter would preclude it from being a conspiracy by any means. But I think that's sort of the shorthand that a lot of people use. And certainly, I believe what the House Select Assassination Committee uh, used as kind of their evidence that there was a conspiracy. Um but uh, but nevertheless, you know, the talk about the grassy knoll, the talk about all that kind of stuff has uh, really played like a big, I guess, cultural part of the JFK assassination. But I think we should we should back up a little. I mean, though, we backed up a little basically every episode, but we should back up a little and sort of set the stage of like the, how much of a fucking setup this was. Yeah. Um, so it was known to jfk that he had made enemies of some pretty vicious and powerful people talked about how he had encouraged the production of the film seven days in may which was a, about a military coup by some anti-detente generals and mm -hmm. that he uh, allowed them to film at the white house or outside the white house and um that he on the day that he lands in Dallas on November 22nd. There's a, a big ad for this movie, Seven Days in May, running in the New York Times. So uh, this is something that he sees as being a possibility uh, and is trying to actually preclude. Um, but even leading up to that in November, we already talked a little bit about the coup in uh, Vietnam, in South Vietnam, that uh, deposed and then assassinated uh, No Din Diem, the American puppet who had been there, that Kennedy did not support the assassination certainly and probably didn't want the coup to go forward it was ordered by 
Harriman and Hillsman when he was at when Kennedy was out of town. So on that day, Madam New, who's uh, a very uh, aggressively right wing reactionary uh, figure who had previously cheered on the immolation of uh, the self immolation of Buddhist monks, saying like, "Oh, if they have another barbecue, you know, I'll bring the match and the gasoline next time. You know, let's let's have a party." So this woman is uh, she's a right wing figure, to put it mildly. And the day that her husband is assassinated, she says, um, I can say that many more Americans than one might believe are on my side. If my family has been killed with either the official or unofficial blessings of the U.S. government, I can predict to you that the story of Vietnam is only at its beginning. Okay. But Kennedy, meanwhile, before he leaves Dallas, tells people that there's going to be a full review of Vietnam policy that he's ordered uh, to be carried out. And that the orders for that, the instructions for that, documents about that have gone missing or, or they've never been released. So it's, it's unclear what exactly he was referring to. We still don't know. But Madam New, the woman who uh, was the barbecue enthusiast, she also was uh, in Dallas on October 24th, presented with a bouquet of flowers at USA Day. Uh, which was organized by our friend, right-wing, uh, you know, hardcore ultra-rightist General Edwin Walker. And uh, these flowers get presented mm-hmm. to Madame New by the daughter of Robert Surrey, who was a aide to General Walker. And he's part of this group that distributed in Dallas a sign, these, these pamphlets that said, Wanted for Treason, these leaflets, and it had a picture of Kennedy's head. So they're calling the president, you know, a wanted figure for treason. Treason carries the death penalty in the United States. Um, so these are these are pretty serious uh, right wing extremists down there, and um, this is uh, noteworthy because they're also connected to the Minutemen uh, and uh, H. L. Hunt, and really the Madame New is the part of the Far East lobby of like the World International or World Anti Communist League, right? So, and on top of that, the um, mayor of Dallas is uh, the brother is Cabell. Uh, his name's Cabell, and he's the brother of. Charles Cabell, I believe it was Earl Cabell was the mayor and Charles was the CIA guy that Kennedy fired after the Bay of Pigs. And it came out just a couple of years ago that Earl Cabell, the mayor of Dallas, was a longtime CIA asset, which people always suspected because of his brother, uh, you know, his brother's status. But this uh, we got documented confirmation of this later. So Texas is uh, a place with a lot of people who hate Kennedy uh, for not for what his moves against the oil industry, potentially de-escalating the Cold War, um, civil rights. There's a lot of hardcore racists among these um, circles. Mm-hmm. Not surprise, surprise. And um, Kennedy also has some support in Texas. He's got a Texan vice president who he'd considered dropping from the ticket, probably was going to drop from the ticket because of the Bobby Baker mm-hmm. sex scandal, which uh, you guys is sort of a forerunner to certain elements that we see in the Epstein case, which uh, I know you guys are very familiar with. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the parade route for Kennedy, he lands at Love Airport. There's a famous scene of um, a guy, a Secret Service guy, uh, you can find this on YouTube, trying to get on the back of the limousine for Kennedy, you know, to serve as some protection. And he gets waved off by, uh, I believe the guy's name is Kelly Ribka, and he he tries to get on and, and stay there to offer some protection for Kennedy. And he he um, is ordered to stop, and he actually you know looks back, sort of angry, and like raises his arms, like as if to say, like, "Hey, you know what, what's going on? I'm supposed to, I'm yeah, supposed to do this. Why are you ordering me off of this? What's up with that? Exactly, that's exactly what he would seem to be saying, even though there's no audio on that on that tape. And the parade route gets changed so that it goes under, uh, it goes through a very sharp turn right onto Elm Street, 
uh, in Dealey Plaza, which happens to be underneath the Texas School Book Depository, where one Lee Harvey Oswald is employed. And as they turn onto that street, um, the way that I recall it having gone down is the governor of Texas, his wife, uh, Mrs. Connolly, she turns to the president and says, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you, Mr. President. And then bang, bang, bang. Uh, and, and the president is, is shot. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the secret service there and I know that there are sort of a lot of, um, questionable practices that were put in place by the secret service that day. Number one, I think the head of the secret service was actually out of the country that day. Wasn't he? A lot of people were out of the country. Yeah. A, a lot of the yeah. cabinet officials, a very large number were, were actually in a plane over the Pacific. Um, so yeah, there, I don't know the story of the head of the secret service, but their, um, activities that day are very questionable as well as the night before they, they, uh, were out getting drunk, like whiskey drunk until like two or three in the morning or something like that, which, uh, if you have to get up the next day, I don't know if you guys have experienced this before, but you're not your sharpest if you've gone on a, you know, big vendor the night before. So this wasn't good. Uh, what a crazy coincidence. Good trade craft, you know? I'll be real with you guys about that one. From what I understand about the Secret Service and like particularly some famous stories that have emerged in the past uh, <laughs> five or ten years, that is not that suspicious. That seems very actually par for the course of the Secret Service. To be doing. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean for for you know for anybody who's sort of looking, I mean I I think it sort of seems ridiculous and quaint to us nowadays that a president would ride in an open top limousine through a place with so many tall buildings. I mean now. You know, Obama, Biden, Trump, whatever comes to town, and there are, you know, not only is there a hyper, you know, like ostentatiously militarized police presence, but the Secret Service are, you know, they will come to your house if they think that if you have ever said, like, you know, anything bad about them, president on the internet, or like, you know, they will have snipers in every window and stuff like that. But so, I mean, obviously that wasn't the case back then, but even though that was, even with, with, you know, less security than they would have now back then. They actually had less security in Dallas than they would have had normally. I mean, it was basically a skeleton crew. And uh, a lot of the gaps were filled in by our good buddies at the Dallas Police Department. And, and Ben, I know that you're particularly a large fan of these uh, these boys. I mean, you're a classic Boston guy, back the blue, but like, you know, <laughs> goes without saying, uh, you know, remember our heroes. But, uh, but, but you, you've taken a bit of an interest in these, in these guys. Well, yeah, and you you mentioned the the uh, militarization of police that's happened uh, in recent years, but the uh, the Dallas Police Department was militarized in a in a more subtle, covert way. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, something like forty to fifty of the Dallas Police Department officers were a part of a, a, a military reserve, an Army Reserve unit, uh, which was called the four hundred eighty eighth Military Intelligence Detachment. Uh, and this was a unit which was um, established by Jack Crichton, uh, who was a longtime spy. He'd been been in the OSS. Um, he had been. In, he was an, also an oil figure, of course, like a lot of these intelligence connected people uh, in this. Uh, I'm going to use the word milieu again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he he actually uh, was was. Uh, uh, I mentioned that George DeMorenshell had this uh, Cuban Venezuelan oil trust company that they were working on, uh, and Jack Crichton was heavily involved in that. Um, and so Crichton was a was an old you know OSS spy, 
Um, and he formed this, you know, essentially by all accounts, kind of a private intelligence uh, group that was that was also, of course, a, a, an official uh, U.S. Army Reserve unit. And something uh, I think the unit at the time was was something like a hundred people, uh, and about half of them were Dallas Police Department um, officers. So the the um, this this I wouldn't even call it infiltration, but this you know this uh, seconding of the Dallas Police Department to the military intelligence in this context, uh, I think is is highly alarming, yeah. uh, particularly given some of the actions that they take in the aftermath of the shooting. Um, but, you know, for one thing, like um, uh, the deputy chief of the Dallas Police Department, Lumpkin, uh, was was good friends with Jack Crichton, and he was actually in the lead car in the motorcade. Um, so the the Dallas Police Department had a very serious role in, in providing security for this and also just kind of generally shepherding the president uh, on this motorcade route. So uh, the, the fact that they were unknown to you know, really anybody at the time. I mean, I wonder how much the Secret Service knew about this. I wonder how much Kennedy himself knew about this. Uh, that this this police department was heavily infiltrated with these um, with these intelligence officers. Yeah, and another thing about Crichton is um, that he was a person who had done a lot of work with or, or had been involved with continuity of government operations, and uh, you know, COG or the Doomsday Project, which is. Uh, you know, one of the most mysterious and kind of disturbing elements yeah. of the U.S. national security state, and of all of these sort of deep political events, it runs through them like Iran Contra, um, Watergate. James McCord is one of the main figures. Nine um, Eleven, of course, all of these, you know, what Peter Del Scott calls deep events, have a a utilized this, and it's you know you they establish these entities in the Cold War you know, when they're thinking along the grimmest lines about how you would survive a nuclear strike that might decapitate the leadership. And so in in so doing, I mean, and maybe it starts off in some sort of reasonable way of like, well, what would you do in that case? But it, they're shrouded in secrecy and planned in secrecy and their provisions are not really known. And they establish these communications networks that kind of could give them a, you know, the ability to carry out policies that uh, have not, that are not approved of by the president, the, the you know Congress or even the, even the president, uh, you know, might not know about about these things. And it seems something like that would be seized upon by people like Dulles and people who are really at the top of the um, you know intelligence hierarchy in terms of really thinking about the possibilities that that this sort of system would afford. And so we don't know what the COG role there was, but Jack Crichton was a very uh, it was an important figure in that system. And there was something released maybe in the last ten years that says that that mentions this office of like emergency preparedness or or something that that comes out of that's related to continuity of government. And they say uh, we you know our office has been responsible for documenting uh, many important events, including the um, Kennedy assassination in Dallas in 1963. But no documents from that office have ever really been released. And so it really makes you wonder how those communications networks were utilized. I mean, mm. and the networks of the, yeah. uh, you know, officials in the government within that, you know, uh, organization, what, what they did. But uh, it's 
you know, there were reports of phones going out in DC for a time related to that. And, uh, you know, who knows what role continuity of government played, but it's something else to consider if it was an act of, uh, the submerged state, you know, um, then that could have very well been a part of the, uh, of the whole operation. And so the Crichton and the military intelligence people in Dallas, between the people who were connected to this military intelligence into these military intelligence entities, and then the people who were just low level corrupt palling around at the carousel club with Jack Ruby all the time, you know, protecting drug traffic and gambling operations and prostitution rackets and all that, you know, there may have been like one honest policeman in Dallas, uh, Roger Craig or something, <laughs> maybe not, but like, it, it's just, he, and the mayor was a CIA asset. Um, so this was, he, he should have stayed in Washington on that day. Yeah. You mentioned those, those, um, communications networks, uh, you know, sort of Oliver North, you know, famously used Flashpoint as kind of his mm-hmm. backdoor to to communicate with people outside the normal chains of communication. And I know Peter Dale Scott has written about the possibility of, you know, that similar type of of cog, uh, li- you know, literal physical communications infrastructure, you know, you know, those kinds of things potentially having been used by some of the conspirators to communicate with one another on the day in a way that, as you mentioned, Aaron, there's no documentation that's come out about what might have been said on these, who was using them, who had access to them for what purposes. But the uh, I think that's a super important point that Crichton, I think they literally built a bunker like under the plaza of the museum, you know, it was like right there. Uh, and and I'm sure that that was full of communications equipment, and, uh, which, which as I mentioned, Peter Del Scott has, has written about the possibility that was used uh, to help coordinate some of the, some of the conspirators. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, even in seven days of May that there's, there's, there's sort of like talking about taking over the actual, you know, the sort of overground, uh, overworld communication networks too, as part of the plot, uh, to, to, to depose the government. And there's a, there's a few sort of famous figures that I think a lot of people like to kind of keep track of on November 22nd, 1963. Um, one of those of course is Richard Nixon, uh, who is no longer in government. Uh, he was, uh, I believe at a Coke convention. Pepsi. Pepsi. Pepsi, excuse me. He was Pepsi CEO at the time. You know, yeah. it's, it, I actually, I always mix it up with, um, there's a, uh, there's a Rolling Stone song called Message to Turner, where they talk about meeting a guy in uh, oh. Coke convention in 1963, which is, I think it's actually 65, <laughs> but I always, for some reason, associate that with Nixon there. Uh, yeah. So he is, he is in Dallas. Uh, a lot know, of people in Dallas. A lot of people in Dallas. George, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush is in Dallas that day. Um, Although the the word is that he actually smoked so much uh, of that Dallas Kush that he he can't remember exactly what he was doing or where he was. Thank God he's got that he letter he wrote or that or that his mom wrote, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That his his wife his, his wife. wife wrote a whole story about the fact that they were in Tyler. You know, it was. I think I mentioned it on an earlier on an earlier thing that we did, but the, yeah. the idea that he had been in Tyler, Texas. He also, I mean, H W. Just a brief aside on H W. But so first off. He accused this random person who had nothing to do with the assassination, James Milton Parrott, of having been involved and uh, and and just m- completely made up this story and sent it to the FBI. I don't it's unclear to me why he did that, perhaps to like just to throw up a bunch of chaff, a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But he he also got briefed uh, by by Hoover, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was sent information. And, and also, this is how we know that uh, one of the ways that we've confirmed that H.W. was in the CIA at this point because he's referred to as George Bush of the CIA. But uh, uh, in this in this um, memo, uh, Hoover is informing, or Ho- Hoover mentions that he had informed H.W. about 
the activities of, of Cuban exiles uh, in the aftermath of the assassination. Uh, HW was being kept up to date on, on these matters, which is quite curious. Yeah, to be clear, H.W. had denied that he was ever in the CIA before becoming CIA director. Yes. Um, in fact, famously, he was the first CIA director. Uh, well, he wasn't actually, but he was allegedly the first CIA director who had never been in the agency. And this was the whole reason he was made director was because he was going to clean the place up. And, <laughs> and obviously, that he had been a longtime agency yeah. guy and he was there to, to actually clean the place up. Um, there's one There's one figure that we haven't mentioned who was in, in Dallas on that day. Uh, as I understand, Phil Oaks, the um, folk singer, oh lord, was actually I in read Dallas, about this, and he it, it, there was some sort of odd way that he found himself there, and uh, sort of like Nixon. Like I don't think Nixon was a part of the plot, but he was invited by like uh, is it Doug or Dan Kendall, the, the Pepsi CEO guy, right at this Bottlers mm-hmm. convention, and then he leaves. But he always Nixon, you know, there's letters where he wrote to Kendall later saying like. Hey, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit more about that Bay of Pigs thing, right? So Nixon again trying to like <laughs> trying to like figure this out. He's it's kind of sad. He never he, he never gets to the Bay bottom Pigs. of it. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then he finds out he's got to resign and his vice the vice president is a guy that he didn't even put on the ticket in the first place. He was and, this uh, close. This close <laughs> yeah, to getting not, it. But didn't make it. So there's a lot of people there that are it's that it's a it's very strange why Nixon would have been there for some sort of uh, I mean, it was it did mess up the traffic and stuff having that bottlers convention, and then you know why have Nixon there? Because uh, Kendall was a guy who was involved in the Chilean coup in 1971. He helped. Yeah, him, absolutely. Uh, work. He worked yeah. with the CIA. There. I mean, he was with the sh- Pepsi. Needs a lot of sugar back in the day before they had that corn syrup uh, stuff they put in it now. But you know, the, and the sugar mm. industry is one of the most the nasty real mob Pepsi. connected gangsterish things. I mean, like, going all the way yeah. back to like the slave you know, colony in Haiti. It's like sugar is just it's not fun to cultivate and it's nasty business. So there you go. But you're getting too off topic. I mean, come on, what does sugar have to do with Cuba or anything like that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> no, but I do want to point that out. It is. Ju- it's just very fucking weird that Pepsi, I mean, Pepsi is like a major corporation in like early 20th century American, oh, yeah. uh, dalliances, uh, you know, internationally. And I just like, it's very fucking weird that they would invite Nixon to be in Dallas on the day of the assassination. They, I mean, I don't find, I find it highly plausible that they were aware of what's going on. It seems like a lot of people were aware of what's, what was going on or was about to go on. Well, um, Pepsi and Coca-Cola also had bottling plants like throughout the world too. And uh, sometimes in pretty like, you know, in countries that weren't exactly friendly to the US or that we didn't have much of like maybe even a dipl- official diplomatic presence in. And, you know, they, they I, I think in, in Laos, they used uh, Pepsi plants as uh, as basically staging areas for anti-communist um, you know, like uh, operations and stuff like that. Um, and certainly, I mean, it, it makes perfect, I mean, in South America as well too. Yeah. One guy we should also mention that was uh, up to uh, well, he was he wasn't at home on uh, November twenty second. Was Alan Dulles? Um, he was at a a I believe it was a farm used by the CIA 
uh, as sort of like a uh, an alt command center. Yeah, he was and, in a bunker. Uh, he was yeah, at a bunker. He, well, I don't know. Maybe an <laughs> overground bunker. But yeah, you know, bunkers can be overground. I've been to fucking... Uh, I, when I was seven, my dad took me to Normandy. I saw them fucking things there. <laughs> um, so he was... Uh, Alan Dulles was also... Uh, was, 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 was not lounging poolside. He was, uh, he was basically at like a CIA operations center then. And throughout the, 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 I believe, the next few days. Well, Kennedy... Goes through Dealey Plaza, goes into Dealey Plaza, and he doesn't come out. He doesn't come out the same way that he went in. Um, he is the, the the limousine slows down, stops according to many witnesses, but that doesn't seem to be what the Zapruder film shows. Um, so, it, but the the driver did not do a very good job. Oh, there's somebody shooting at the president. I better stop to make sure he's okay. Right, that was apparently his thought process. But a lot of people have thought he must have had something to do with this because he was so incompetent. And uh, one Secret Service agent runs back. Is, uh, is the guy? Is it O'Neill? Maybe um, I think the guy's name is O'Neill, and he actually does do his job and tries to get to the president. But he finds the president in bad shape, um, with a massive wound in the back of his head, uh, where a bullet had presumably exited. Uh, you know, taking out a lot of the president's brain. The people behind the presidential limousine get hit with so much force of like you know ejected mm-hmm. bone and brain material that they actually think they've been hit uh, by bullets, but they haven't. It's just the president's yeah. uh, skull. Jackie Kennedy uh, in those videos you can see it or the pictures. She crawls on the back of the trunk to try to retrieve a piece of skull that has been blown out of the back of Kennedy's head, and she actually does, and eventually Incredible takes it to intuition. the doctors. Yeah, um, and they managed not to shoot her. The governor is shot in multiple places in the uh, chest and in the wrist and in the leg. Um, and the president, the first sign that he is shot is he grabs his neck as though he'd been shot in the neck. Mm-hmm. And they go to, uh, you know, then a, few, a couple seconds later, a few seconds later, um, he gets, there's this shot to his head, at least one shot. Some people think two shots hit him about at about the same time in the head. And there was no way he was going to survive this uh, this injury. And he gets taken to uh, the hospital, Parkland Hospital. And Parkland. Before long, he is pronounced dead. And his surgeon signs the death certificate and fills it out. And this document is actually kept out of the Warren Commission um, volumes later. And uh, he's never called to testify, which is interesting. And uh, the doctor's... Uh, are are they're trying to treat Kennedy? He's read his last rites, but his last rites are read to a to his his corpse, uh, really. Um, and they uh, then there's a a conflict that ensues because Texas law was that the president was supposed to be or anybody murdered mm-hmm. was supposed to be investigated by local authorities, right? And so, so you could, there's no special law like oh if it's the president then X or Y or whatever, right? So there was no legal basis for what unfolded there, which was the Secret Service pulling out their guns to take the president's body loaded onto the plane and fly to Bethesda. Uh, and on the way there, Lyndon Johnson is sworn in um, as president with Jackie Kennedy still wearing that pink jacket that she had on that was covered in gore. Uh, and she was told that she should, she might want to take it off. And she says, no, I, I want them to see what they did to Jack. And so she's standing next to Lyndon Johnson in that famous picture of him being sworn in. And then an autopsy mm-hmm. is carried out in, in Bethesda, Maryland at a, uh, at, a, at a naval hospital. 
Yeah, I, I want to say there are a lot of, um, I mean, maybe we can get to this a little bit, but there are a lot of sort of conflicting stories with autopsies and things missing and maybe parts of, uh, you know, the front of Kennedy's head are gone that weren't gone in uh, when he was in Texas. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's sort of one of the, one of the most, um, not confusing, but uh, strange aspects of the uh, of the Kennedy assassination, and I shouldn't even say most because it's all strange, confusing. Um, is the sort of like conflict between uh, Kennedy's body essentially being taken out of Dallas, a murder that occurs in Dallas, and then being taken to uh, to somewhere you know thousands of miles away, uh, you know, and, and then having an investigation, not even necessarily done by the not done by the police, essentially done by a commission. Um, but we should get to, you know, we should, we should, we should, we should kind of zoom in on some Dealey, Dealey Plaza stuff there, because I want, you know, if you're listening to this, if you're driving your car, especially while you're listening to this, I want you to put your phone right in front of your face and, uh, and sort of Google an overhead view of what Dealey Plaza looks like, because this is, you know, he's going down, I think it's called Houston street. Um, or, or as the New Yorkers call it Houston street, but we'll call it Houston street because that's actually how you pronounce it. New York one too. Uh, so he's going down Houston Street, and then, like like Aaron said earlier, it takes a sharp turn to the left there, and sort of starts going down this curvy Elm Street. I mean, it's I guess it just makes a two, couple of gentle curves. You know, a, a supposedly Oswald is on the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository, which is in the corner of Houston and Elm, um, and. Uh, he he's looking down and you know say like i mean again you know you're looking at this if i am going to shoot somebody from the 6th floor of the texas book depository and i don't want to get too bogged down into this but i just want to be clear if anyone is going to shoot somebody you have a much better field of view when they're coming towards you down houston it's much more difficult to take a shot at somebody at the angle that he shoots him at. There are trees there that are always in bloom. They are not like, you know, I, again, like obviously this happens in November. These are evergreen trees. They are not like, you know, they, they, they've not shed their leaves. There is a sign uh, on the overpass there. Um, and, uh, and he manages to shoot Kennedy sort of at this strange angle and he fires off uh, two or three shots. And, and again, I think even the Warren commission admits there might've been three shots, uh, you know, uh, from, from the Carcano rifle, which is a bolt action rifle. That means you manly manually have to pull the bolt back to rack a new bullet into the chamber, three shots, uh, in a, in a in less than six seconds. Um, you know, Aaron mentioned earlier, there's a Bruder film, or I guess you alluded to the a Bruder film, but there is a film of Kennedy getting shot, which I'm sure everybody listening to this has at least seen stills from it. Um, like we mentioned in an earlier episode, I, I think we mentioned this, um, that film was immediately purchased by, um, by the loose, uh, corporations or by the loose families corporation, the life, uh, life magazine who keep it in a vault for quite a long time and then release sort of, um, shots of it with or versions of it with frames missing, especially frame 313, which is the frame where you can see Kennedy's head snapping back. Um, now I, you know, I've seen people get shot, you know, I know that bodies react pretty wildly to, you know, to, to impacts of bullets, you know, they do things that look sort of unnatural, but you know, from a layman's perspective here, I'll be real with you. It looks like Kennedy's getting shot from the front right there. And now to the front of Kennedy, when he gets shot to the left is a grassy knoll. 
And this is, you know, where a lot of the sort of like jokes about the candidate, oh, he's on the grassy knoll, he's on the grassy knoll. Um, I mean, I think without a doubt, it's entirely possible that Kennedy was shot by somebody from either the grassy knoll or from someone in that direction. You know, I, I'm not married to the knoll or anything like this. There are a lot of reports. I, I, I think the actual statistic, although I'm sure you could find things that say many different things, but I think the actual statistic is something like 74% of witnesses saying that they heard three yeah. shots. Um, right after it happened, there is an almost immediate reaction by nearly everyone on the ground, which, I mean, the crowd wasn't that big, actually, which is very odd, kind of looking back, like, in our time. But, like, well, I mean, it's big, but it's not, I mean, it's not that big. It's right? not like a massive crowd, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, pretty much, like, everyone, who, their instinct is to run towards the knoll. And you can see this, like, you know, as it's happening, and people have testified to this, like, immediately after, although we can talk about where that testimony went. Um, but most people uh, immediately like run towards the knoll because that's where they had heard gunshots coming from. Um, and there's a kind of like fence that separates it. And so um, the kind of implication being that if there were shooters that they had, had been posted up kind of behind this little fence as a, as a bit of a cover. I mean, the deal is here is like, you know, the true and on JFK episode number four, I think this is, we're not going to tell you who the other shooter was. We don't know. Nobody knows. I well, mean, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. Liz, Liz knows, but again, she's not going to tell us, which is, Because you know, some people told me and I told them I wouldn't tell. Exactly. So. And of course, you know, it's becoming to be coquettish. I think they're being coquettish <laughs> when you do that. Um, you know, there are a lot of theories on who it could have been. I think at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily matter exactly who. And it's, it's, I mean, it's quite likely that we wouldn't recognize the name of who. I mean, there's a lot of sort of theory. Oh, it's Frank Sturgis. I think it's way too pat for it to have actually been Frank Sturgis. Oh, it's the smoky man from X-Files, which I think is, there is video evidence of that. That is alluding to the most. Um, I think but, uh, I mean, oh, it was Ted Cruz's dad. Uh, Ted Cruz's dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's just linked. I totally forgot about that. That was fuck. that was we so fucking funny. That. that was that was <laughs> that was that was amazing, incredible, what an incredible moment. Um, oh, but you know, there were you know there 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 were quite a a few witnesses who said that they saw you know these three tramps, for instance. Uh, you know, there's there's a there's a kind of famous pictures of a, a few. Uh, hobos, um, sort of like down and out guys. Well dressed, by the way. Well, very well dressed well, hobos. Everybody was, you know, wearing them suits back then. Um, but uh, I'd like to, Young Chomsky immediately puts his head towards it. He's like, actually, those suits are pretty shitty. Um, but uh, the, uh, you know, they, they got the they got the three tramps out there. Some people said it was like Frank Sturgis. I can't remember. Maybe the other one was like Howard Hunt or something like that. But that, again, I, I don't think that's possible. What I do think is, is, is entirely possible is that somebody shot Kennedy from the front with a suppressed weapon, um, you know, either from the grassy knoll or from somewhere beyond that. Now, I say suppressed weapon because I, um, well, there's a lot of, I mean, suppressors were not, and suppressors, for those of you who don't know, are like uh, basically long tubes that you screw on into the, the threads of a gun, uh, which displaces the sound, which displaces a bunch of the gas that comes out, which causes the explosion that you see at the end of a gun. And also hides the noise. They don't, unlike in video games, they don't silence it. It's not like pew, pew. You, it's still definitely a gunshot, 
but it doesn't sound anything or much like a gunshot that's being fired near you, especially when you use subsonic ammunition, which I do not want to get too whatever about this, but it's ammunition that uh, basically is designed to be fired through a suppressor and is much lower. Uh, I've shot subsonic ammunition at a gun range before through a suppressor. It's like fucking silent. Um, but, you know, entirely possible that, that, you know, the reason there's so many discrepancies in what people are hearing, you know, because there are a lot of people who report hearing gunshots also from the grassy knoll, uh, is because they're there that Kennedy is shot from the other direction, from the front with a suppressed weapon. And that would not be such a big stretch either, because a lot of the major power players that are connected with this are connected with the sort of people who really pioneered the use of suppressors in the United States, particularly this guy, Mitchell Werble the third who is, again, one of my, and the pantheon of guys that I can't help but be somewhat charmed by because he's such a bastard. I mean, Werbel III, much like, you know, like the Mornstahl or any number of people we could name, even, uh, you know, Sturgis, was one of those guys who didn't work for the CIA, but happened to be in every single country that the (laughs) CIA was overthrowing the government of for like 15 years straight. And Werbel, by his own admission, was a gun runner. I mean, he really, he was like the guy who was like, Mac-10s, like, fucking have at him. You know, he was like, like he literally went into business with, with the Ingram, like the inventor of the Mac-10, Mac-11. Um, but he was a real pioneer in the art of suppressors. Uh, and uh, and he was very close to a lot of the people who were behind the Kennedy assassination, who were thought to be behind the Kennedy assassination. I mean, also the guy, much like many of these people, was running guns into Cuba. And so I think, you know, Without getting too much into the scientific details of this, because you know there are a lot of theories about the fucking magic bullet and all this kind of stuff. I don't know the answers to any of these. I'm not a, a specialist at any of this, and there's a, a, frankly too many unknowns for me to be actually sure about any of this. But what I'm leaning towards is is that there's absolutely could have been a suppressed weapon used, and that accounts especially for a lot of the confusion, the discrepancies, because most people, even if they had been in a war and there were people, uniformed soldiers there who were off base, you know, in fact, take video of this, uh, which the video that that soldier I'm talking about was confiscated by a guy in a suit who said he was a cop. Um, you know, these people, even if they had heard guns fire before, they would not have heard a suppressed weapon before. Cause these were not in use by anybody connected to the, well, maybe, you know, I guess they weren't even green berets yet. Or no, there were, um, so these were not in common usage in the armed forces. So, uh, well, I will stop talking about suppressed weapons now. But the, anyways, there, there's a lot of you know confusion. Was Kennedy hit by one shooter or was Kennedy hit by two shooters? Eventually, the House Select Assassination Committee, based on audio evidence they heard, said that there is a large possibility that there were two shooters. And that is the government that is saying that. I mean, yeah, we can get into kind of like the craziness of the magic bullet theory. I it when we talk about the Warren Commission, maybe, but, and kind of where that theory comes from. I don't think that, it's funny, I, d- I don't actually know anyone who agrees with the magic bullet theory. I mean, everyone kind of knows and says outright that they think it's bullshit. So it almost feels weird to spend time, like, debunking it in a weird way. But it is, like, I, I do want to note that, like, um, it is totally, completely not possible and is a totally insane thing for the government to say, <laughs> which yeah. they clearly understood because, like, less than a decade later, they're saying that it's two people, <laughs> right? So, um, I mean, whether – I do think what you're saying is correct. Like, you know, I, I, it's funny because I think that when a lot of people talk either flippantly or 
you know, kind of like disparagingly about like, oh, JFK conspiracy. Blah, 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 blah. They always imagine that it's the person like diagramming out what's happening on Dealey to show that it couldn't be magic bullets. It had to be one or two or three or this is where they were and the null and, you know, all of the, uh, I mean, maybe they're talking about all the fucking fake undercover cops that were there that, like you said, took literally all of the footage except for this Pruder film. <laughs> um, but in actuality, like that, I i mean, I don't know, but like I have in my research on all of this and reading about it and everything, like I focused way less on any of that stuff because the, the crazier stuff is all of the stuff that happens before and after the actual event of the shooting in this kind of bizarre way. Um, and I don't know if it's just that the kind of the 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 line from the government is so absurd on its face that it feels kind of almost silly to spend so much time talking about it. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Like it's almost not as interesting as getting into then immediately after what happens, what happens to the body, what happens to all this footage, you know, okay, who are all these guys in suits saying that they're uh, secret service or that they're with the cops or the FBI that interview people, all of the, that testimony is gone because those weren't actual, I mean, I think they maybe they were cops or they weren't cops, but they weren't who they said they were or the stuff didn't go anywhere. Um, and then, of course, what happens to our man on the ground, Lee Harvey Oswald, if he was on the ground, we can talk about that. But it's almost like, so the actual, like, you know, seconds of the shooting aren't even as interesting to me. I don't know how you guys feel. Um, I think that the idea that there were strange munitions and firearms being used mm, in there absolutely. and Mitch Verbell would be the guy uh, who would be a key figure in that. Um, I believe that he his compound where he did all this stuff was <laughs> the farm. Like when you said when you said that Dulles was at a farm, I believe it's like the farm as it was called. And then one of the meanings for that could be the place that Mitch Verbell had, you know, did a lot of this work, if I recall correctly. Again, I'm, I'm with Liz on not being too obsessed on the details there, but I do want to add to uh, what both of you said in that the grass, a lot of people did run toward the grassy knoll and that's where they were confronted with people who had secret service credentials. Mm -hmm. There's a number of witnesses to this effect mm -hmm. and there were no secret service people there. And people who researched this later found out that the entity that makes them was uh, those credentials was essentially controlled by the CIA. And so, if you're going to have shooters there, then uh, you're you then you would want to have a way to make sure that they had a, a good getaway, really. And one, there was one witness to strange goings on down there um, who worked at the uh, like a railroad. Uh, you know, uh, station uh, uh, over yeah. and had a, a big bird's eye view yeah. of this whole thing. And he testified about, about seeing people there. And um, it's also worth mentioning that the limousine, you know, gets cleaned up right away and, and it's never really taken apart or looked oh, at yeah. by the authorities, which is itself quite, um, you know, extremely suspicious that they would, uh, do that it would that was that's like a you know obstruction of justice or something i mean this is obviously a you know a, a place that has um or an, an item that has a a lot of importance the reason that they have to settle for three bullets is that a there are only three shell casings found in the place where oswald allegedly was right and uh, they were kind of laid out all 
perfectly as though they were just set there and then later sort of rearranged it, yeah. it seems. And um, also the time that it took, it was like, it was, it had to be done over a six second time period. One of the bullets completely misses. And if, if it was fired by someone in Oswald's position, he would have had to have missed by a hundred feet or something like that because of where it lands now, if it was fired from somewhere else, then it would make a little more sense. But it ricochets and it hits a guy in the face, this guy named James Tag. Um, and so then they, and there's, of course, Kennedy getting shot in the head. That's two bullets, which means they have to, when we get to the Warren Commission, we can do, go into more detail about this. But they have to count for seven wounds with one bullet. And that becomes mm-hmm. the magic bullet theory. And as you say, it only takes like really briefly looking at it to say that is obviously, this is obviously not true. And uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's just the angles of it are impossible, and the condition of the bullet is impossible. And so this is, and even the Warren commissioners, some of them did not believe it, and they actually thought that their objections were going to be in the record, and they weren't. They were deceived <laughs> in order to get this outcome. So this is significant, and um, for the, the for them to be taken after that, they they go to doubt, they go to the um, hospital there. And there's a journalist, Seth Cantor, who's in the, who's with the, um, who's actually traveling with the motorcade, and they go right there. And Seth Cantor at the hospital sees Jack Ruby um, at the at the hospital and has a conversation with him, and he knows him very well uh, at this point. And so they they talk. He recognizes him, and they they talk to each other. And uh, this, the Warren Commission later, after the fact, after Ruby shoots Oswald, they Jack Ruby says, "No, I wasn't there," and they take his word for it. Um, because of, I don't know why he's a, he's a pimp. So he has credibility. I mean, he's a pimp among other things, but like, um, it's, it's, you know, interesting. Oh, oh, like, yeah, I see what you're saying. He's, no, I mean, he's literally a pimp. I I don't mean that as a, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Literally and figuratively. Well, (laughs) yeah, I'm not, it's not my way to express admiration for the man. Let's just say. No, (laughs) his, his, uh, gamesmanship. So, uh, this is all very the, the circumstances around it are are completely sus, are, are so suspicious and the the way that it's tried, oh, yeah. explained after the fact completely implausible and even Connolly says no I wasn't hit with the same bullet that hit the president first I looked over one shoulder looked over the other shoulder after Kennedy got hit and the the last thing I want to say about the the bullets and the sounds and everything the audio that they do use this dictabelt recording, which has been disputed by investigators mm-hmm. after the fact, but I don't necessarily take this. If we're talking about a state crime, then the state to exonerate the state is not necessarily a conclusion that you can take much faith in. And if you look at how right. some people have synced it up with the video, it does sync up and it shows four shots and furthermore, people like Cyril Wecht, one of the best pathologists, uh, you know, in the U.S., um, they believe that Kennedy was hit with two bullets at the same time uh, in that headshot, essentially, and that in that case, that would probably sound like one bullet anyway. And so there were probably mm-hmm. not just four; there were probably other ones. And who knows what kind of silencers or uh, ammunition that would like fragment, exactly. you know, and account for that enormous blowout wound to the back of Kennedy's head. Uh, you know, who knows yeah. what kind of stuff. Yeah, it is, it a, is it's a huge fucking wound. wound. Yeah. It's described as a huge wound by everyone, but the actual autopsy photos are just a little hole, right. like the size yeah. of your pinky. 
And supposedly people that go and see yep. it, it, it's with this stereo, um, the stereoscope tech, you know, technique that allows you to see it sort of in like 3d almost. And for the other pictures, it, it works that way. But then for the, um, the one of the back of the head with that little tiny hole that it looks like it's just sort of pasted on there. Uh, if you actually have the autopsy photos with those stereoscopic viewers, which I, I don't have, but I've heard that from people. And it does not match what the people at Parkland Hospital in Dallas saw. They all reported seeing this massive uh, hole in the, back of, in the back of Kennedy's head, which is clear evidence of a shot from the front. Yeah, and, the, and just the... the um... Like the way that it was spoken about in the press, there was there was immediately the the idea, like Dan Rather famously saying right. that he his head moved violently forward. Um, contrary to what the Zapruder film shows, which if you've watched JFK, you know, back into the left, back into mm-hmm. the left, right? And um, you know, maybe this is an aside, but just the the idea of the magic bullet theory being kind of on its face almost ridiculous. The uh, when our when our man Geraldo Rivera showed the Zapruder film on television for the first time, uh, it had a really serious effect on people uh, because yeah. what what they saw on that film uh, was so contrary to what uh, how how it had been described in the press beforehand and how uh, how the Warren Commission describes what happened, mm. and so it. Um, you know, it's like one of those, like, who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes kind of thing, right? right? Like it was, it seemingly was clear to people having seen the film. Um, and it, it seemed like it produced this effect of, of people all of a sudden being like, okay, this is not cl- clearly, this has been concealed from us for some reason. Right. So I do, I do kind of agree the, the, um, you know, we'll maybe talk about the specifics of the magic bullet theory when we talk about the Warren commission and how they had to square this impossible to square circle, um, but it does seem to me like you, you almost can dismiss it on its face. And a lot of people, a lot of the American public seemingly did when they saw this Bruder film for the first time. I, I want to say something that something that's always uh, kind of made me giggle, I guess. Although I guess I, I don't really sound like I have a giggle voice right now. So I'm not really sure that's the most appropriate use to wor- word to use. But, you know, an interesting thing here uh, is that the the I believe the chair of the House Select Committee on Assassinations forensic pathology group was one Dr. Michael Baden, who um, being beyond being involved in basically every famous autopsy of the past 70 years was also the person that Epstein's brother, Mark Epstein hired to, uh, to to declare actually that Epstein himself was murdered, um, which is in the Kennedy case, uh, Dr. Michael Baden, who I I think, and again, I don't have this in front of me, so I could be wrong. I think actually might have stolen a little piece of his brain. Um, uh, he he declared that uh, that Kennedy actually, you know, while while he was like, oh well, the army, you know, the the people who did the autopsy were army doctors who weren't used to doing autopsies, but their findings were actually correct. You know, they shouldn't have been assigned to it, but they, but they were actually correct. So, you know, this guy, I mean, he was also, I believe, um, sort of. Poo poo the uh, the James Earl Ray was not acting alone theory as well. So there you go. Well, one person we haven't talked about who may or may not have been there on the day mm-hmm. is oh. Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh yeah, Lee. 
<laughs> the 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 man uh who ostensibly shot the president with the magic bullet like we said from the book depository so maybe what we should do in order to talk about a little bit about what happened where oswald goes after and how um his arrest kind of goes down is kind of what happens in the immediate aftermath of the shooting and where do the cops go right how do they get to the depository where how do they find Oswald? Maybe we can like trace a little bit of of his his day here. Well, we do know that Oswald did go to work that day. His coworker gave him a ride to work, and uh, his coworker actually kind of had his r- life ruined by it um, because he was he was sort of seen as like maybe an accomplice for quite a while. Um, his coworker also, by the way, who went on Opperman's show very recently. I have not listened to that yet, but I would like to. Um, but uh, but I do know that 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 his coworker I can't remember his name exactly I think it's something Buell, yeah, uh, Fraser Wesley Buell Fraser Wesley Buell Fraser he actually said that that um you know though there's the whole thing with uh, Oswald said he was bringing curtain rods to work and uh, and and uh, you know he actually says that like well the bag that he had couldn't have held that gun even when it was broken down. So like, I think he really was bringing curtain rods to work that day or, you know, he did, this certainly wasn't bringing the Carcano rifle, whether that's true or not. I don't, I mean, he did say that, but you know, whether that's the case or not, I don't know, but it seems like Oswald goes to work. What happens after Oswald gets to work gets a little hazy um, because there is no real evidence that Oswald shot him. I mean, there were gunpowder marks, I believe on his hands, although not on his face, um, which you know, resting your you know little, little cheek well his there, palms, the, not the his palms, not his hands. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. on his palms. Um, but uh, but yeah, it is unclear whether whether Oswald actually fired the shots. Um, but but he does leave, or at least he's gone from the book depository at some point after that, and that is where I believe the murder of uh, J.D. Tippetts happens. Yeah, his his movements are very strange. He is alarmed by this. But he has also, you know, as gets discovered later in uh, New Orleans, he was around people who were talking about the Kennedy assassination. He seems to have been clued in that something was afoot. And it's speculated by some people who have have very strange firsthand knowledge of Oswald, like um, this character, Richard Case Nagel, who we should probably go over in a future episode, Mm -hmm. um, who had who was arrested on purpose and he had some identification of Oswald with that with that fake name Hedell and he had these fair play for Cuba things and yep. he told the people when he got arrested I don't want to be in I just arrest me so I won't be in Dallas when you know in in a, <laughs> in a month and so um and and it's also speculated that you know when when the Chicago plot happens the same day as the uh, DMQ coup on like November 2nd that that Chicago plot that kept JFK from going to Chicago and they arrest these Cuban these uh these right-wing Cuban fellows, but they don't keep any records of it. The uh, informant who uh, dropped a dime on these guys was just named Lee. And so Miguel talks about how he had sort of been with these people, like um, you know Sergio Arcacha-Smith and, and others who had been talking about assassinating Kennedy. And then Oswald supposedly shows up, or he shows up, but this is pretty well documented, with some right-wing Cubans to visit Sylvia Odio beforehand. And they're talking about how this Oswald guy mm-hmm. is with them and he's crazy and he wants to kill the president. So there's all sorts of indications that Oswald was involved with this milieu that we would say was involved in the assassination, these right-wing Cubans and so on. 
and uh, that he was involved in some military intelligence work and that somebody else in a similar capacity, um, um, the Richard Case Nagel, who was out in California also looking into some like doing fair play for Cuba committee stuff and, and investigating some sort of other, uh, you know, p- potential attempts on the president's life. Like Oswald's life in this area and what he's doing in New Orleans and what the Nigel case is all about and his visits to Sylvia Odio and perhaps his role as an informant in the Chicago plot. These are, these all indicate that he was involved with these circles that were in the assassination and perhaps trying to infiltrate them or who knows what, but then when, so when the assassination happens, he decides to get out of Dodge and this is really better documented in uh, Oliver Stone's JFK. They're really painstaking about these details, really about a lot of the details in the case they do a great yeah. job on. And they, it's kind of, he got raked over the coals by the media, but that's just because the media is doing their, their job, which is to defend you know the state, the establishment and all that. But on those sort of details, like the, what Oswald does and the speed at which he does it, they're all very strange. He does seem to be alarmed and to know that something is wrong. So he goes home to get his gun. And then he makes his way eventually to the Texas School Book Depository, or sorry, the, uh, the this movie theater. And he acts strangely. He goes around asking all the people in the audience, mm-hmm. like sitting next to them and like looking at them, like he's, you know, maybe looking for some sort of contact that he would need in a, you know, in, mm-hmm. in some sort of under the event of an emergency. And uh, eventually he gets arrested. But in the meantime. Um, well, and how do they identify Oswald in the first place is very strange because he's on the sixth floor, but somebody identifies him and with a description and this, uh, information comes out of the police radio that is wrong about Oswald. Like, I, I believe that it lists him as like five ten and 160 pounds when really he's five nine and 130, but that happens to be the exact, yeah. um, the exact information, erroneous information that's on his like military, uh, you know, records that's used. And so it, it, that's indicative or just, you know, a funny coincidence, but how do you, if you look at a building on like uh, we have a, you know, there's a four story dormitory around here. If you'd look up to the fourth floor and you saw a person standing there, there's no way you'd be able to say how tall they are uh, or who, even what, who they yeah. were really, and unless you really for knew, sake? you know, what's that? Yeah. Sixth floor. So it's even yeah. higher than that. So that it's very implausible that he could be identified by someone on the ground like that. And it's also, implausible that you would not only identify him but that you would have the incorrect information about his height and weight that happened to correspond to his like military you know military intelligence files uh or whatever so this is really indicative of of him being what he said he was which was a patsy and he he leaves with a revolver or he goes home and get his revolver and then goes to the theater on the way jd Tippett gets shot but there's Conflicting reports about that. Uh, some people say it was two men and two Latino-looking fellows, and there are bullet casings on the ground that that are of sort of strange origin and uh, mysterious sort of chain of custody. And he had a revolver, not a pistol that would that would like eject the casings. And so they their story is that he shoots, you know, bam, blam, blam, empty revolver. Uh, and there's a wallet, right? Empty. Oh, my wallet fell out. Oh, well, right. They find a wallet there. And then when they arrest Oswald, they have, he has a wallet. And then when they go back to the Payne's house, he has a wallet. So there's like three wallets that they find. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay. It's, Jack Ruby isn't the only <laughs> pimp here. <laughs> so it, this, in the, in the Texas, in the theater, 
it's he's killed a cop according to the police like he's not only probably shot the president but he's killed a cop it's quite possible that he was meant to be killed and i think that somebody they actually there's a little bit of a scuffle and somebody tries to one of the cops actually tries to shoot him and then somehow his gun either misfires or oswald puts his hand on, uh, on it to stop it or something and he gets arrested and maybe he was not supposed to be arrested maybe he was actually supposed to be killed and then it, they just botched that part because he says i'm a patsy yeah the whole um goings down at the movie theater the texas theater is very confusing and there are absolutely conflicting reports all over the place there's three witnesses that have oswald in the theater after uh tippet was shot but there are, you know, it's there are the police say that he was arrested, uh, I believe, on the uh, balcony. But there's reports that he's arrested on the ground floor. It seems very confusing. There's plenty of people in the movie theater, by the way, mm-hmm. about. So there's like two different stories happening. Is he on the ground floor? Is he up in the balcony? There, it sounds like, from what I could piece together, and maybe we can get more deep into this a little bit because I do think it's very interesting. But it sounds like there was a second Oswald that shows up after Oswald's first arrest. Um, a second person that was then on the balcony that is maybe let out and identified by witnesses. Yeah, somebody leaves out the back, and these are these are that matches Oswald's basic description. Whereas Oswald is taken out the front, as I recall, that's written about in JFK and the unspeakable. And uh, it's, it is very confusing uh, uh, what, what actually goes down there. And there's kind of things that can't really be easily resolved among the witnesses uh, to that, to that whole episode. So again, the, I'm not a, I'm not a Dealey Plaza person or a, uh, you know, uh, in that way where I could, chapter and verse on all these things to i this might sound funny but i when i when i see message boards where people talk about this i get a little frightened when they're just like oh no that's clarence rogers that appears for one second in frame <laughs> yeah, 212 yeah, yeah. with the, with <laughs> right, the white right, hat right, and i'm right. just like you you need to you, you can't this isn't good for you to know this information right so <laughs> it's, oh no believe me when i got into the suppressed weapons thing there was a lot of big arguments on the uh on the on the like more arcane message boards devoted to this, where they're they're talking about you fucking idiot. Like, have you ever shot a twenty two? Blah. Like, it's, <laughs> which I by the way I don't I don't think Kennedy was shot with twenty two, but it's it's yeah. People get really uh, granular about it. The possibility that he was meant to be killed at the theater, I think, um, makes a lot of sense. We've already talked about the idea that the Dallas PD was was pretty heavily tied in with this military intelligence group. Um, that they possibly were involved with this alternative communication scheme, which was uh, communications infrastructure, which was being possibly used by the conspirators. And then the inconvenient things that Oswald says when he is arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, we haven't gotten into the uh, the Jack Ruby thing, but um, it, 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 it would not surprise me to find out that that was an impromptu ad hoc, you know, decision that was made to have him, to have Ruby do what he, you know, do what he did. Uh, because it seems much easier, uh, the, you know, the police have, you know, a certain omerita, right? There's, there's, a uh, this code that they have on top of the fact that they're part of this intelligence detachment, uh, that they're connected to Crichton, you know, that Lumpkin, the deputy chief is, is a, a key intelligence asset. That seems a much simpler way to tie the knot, right? 
kill kill Oswald, you know, at the movie theater, and, you know, frame him for having murdered this police officer, um, rather than what and you know what ended up happening, which is his arrest, his bizarre, you know, his we, we can understand why he said he was a patsy. He he believed he was a patsy, and he almost certainly was. Uh, but but for the public to see that he this man who was being accused of having killed the president saying that I'm a patsy, that's not the typical defense that a person would take, an innocent person would take to say that they had been framed by somebody for having done this. So I, I it it uh, it seems very plausible to me that he was meant to be killed at the theater, uh, and that the Ruby that the that that what Ruby did was sort of an impromptu or or ad hoc uh, way to to uh, to deal with that loose end. It seems too like Oswald starts figuring out that he like is getting fingered for this, even though he like, it's interesting. He comes out, you know, when he speaks to the media and he's like, I haven't been told what I'm being arrested for. They said that a cop was shot. I didn't shoot the cop. You know, I, you know, he says he's a patsy, but it seems like he understands possibly that he might be being implicated in the JFK assassination, even though he doesn't like come out and say that, but the timeline of his arrest. And then, you know, obviously his death is very weird. So Oswald is arrested at the movie theater. Uh, he is taken into interrogation. It seems like at this point he's trying to, he's possibly maybe figuring out that something has gone, something has gone deeply wrong. Yes. Um, if we kind of like, you know, you know, take a little step back and are observing his movements, it seems like, okay, if, the idea was that he was going to the movie theater to like have a meet with a handler or whoever he was supposed to meet or whatever. Um, and he realizes that doesn't happen. Instead, he gets arrested. Then what his his actions at the um, at the police department, like kind of make a lot a little bit more sense. I think um, he at, at 6 p.m. Will Fritz who we're going to talk about him a bunch. So that's why I'm name checking him. So he shows him the, he shows Oswald the picture of him holding the rifle in one hand with the communist publication uh, in the other with the pistol on his hip. Oswald is like, that's not me. Like that's me, but that's not me. I don't understand. You know, this is like a very famous scene in, um, uh, in JFK, you know, they keep cutting to it and, you know, there's all the people who talk about, oh, okay, is the photo, uh, um, you know, uh, collage. Is it a mood board that the CIA put together? <laughs> Do the shadows not meet up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he says that his face has been superimposed on the body, that that's his face, but that's, you know, that's not him holding the rifle. He has no idea where this photo came from. This is, of course, the famous photo that ends up on the cover of Life magazine. Um, at like two hours later, he's taken down to Dallas police uh, headquarters and he's like this is where you, he starts yelling that he's a patsy he's a patsy um we should point out that jack ruby is there <laughs> at this point and it seems like he had a chance to shoot him then but doesn't unclear why uh <laughs> or what happens i don't know if he froze maybe he got a little cold feet maybe he didn't get the go-ahead who knows but Jack Ruby was there and could have shot him, but didn't. Oswald, um, at this point, he starts asking for legal counsel, which doesn't show up. And this is like very weird. He asked for, um, I believe, like one of the big lawyers at the, at the ACLU. Um, and it was one guy who was really involved in the Smith Act cases. Doesn't show up. Um, 
ACLU reps show up to the jail that Friday night, but are told by the cops that Oswald doesn't want an attorney. So that, I mean, that's, you know, not true. Um, Saturday night, and this is very weird. Oswald attempts to make a couple of phone calls. And when I said that, you know, his movement in the, the movie theater makes sense um, in conjunction with some of the actions that the uh, police headquarters, this is what I'm talking about. It's he, he makes a couple, he attempts to make a couple long distance phone calls. And it seems like what he's trying to do is contact a handler or contact a contact person um, or make some kind of connection. There's, like some switchboard operators that give that are there that are witness to this and are able to give some um, kind of testimony. Uh, two women, Alvita A. Trion and Louise Sweeney. Great names all over the place in this story, by the way. It seems like what by their testimony that Oswald is trying to call someone named John Hurt um, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and basically the um, the switchboard operators. There's two like. There's two of them. One of them is able to kind of grab the note that that they write the number down on as a souvenir that night, which is how this was like kind of documented. Um, the number is eight four three seven four three zero or eight three three one two five three. That's written out like as in there's two numbers there with an or. Um, with some research, in November 1963, John David Hurt is listed as having the first number in Raleigh, and John William Hurt is listed as having the second. This is a very weird, this is very weird. Uh, of the two Hurts, the first one uh, worked in military intelligence. Um, John David Hurt was a U.S. Army counterintelligence agent, um, and all of this, I think, the House Select Committee, like you know, looked at all of this evidence and was like, "This is very provocative." That's always what they say in these reports, which is so funny. Whenever they see something like this that comes up that is like such a clear, like, okay, Oswald, he's trying to make contact with someone who can get him out or tell him what's the next step or, you know, in his brain or whatever. They just go, it's very provocative. <laughs> it's interesting. This is interesting, these points. Um, but John David Hurt denies, like completely denies knowing why Oswald would try to call him. It seems like, um, it, I mean, it seems very clear that that is what he was doing, that he's trying to make some kind of contact and mm -hmm. whether or not it happened or people just knew they, everyone knew to kind of back off and not make contact that this was going to be the fall guy. Yeah. I would add just a couple of things to those stories. Um, the photos that you mentioned that yeah. he says, Oh yeah, those are fake or you, you, I can know how to do that. That's easy to do. You know, he's, um, the shadows people have talked about the strange stuff on the chin is a little weird. But additionally, you know, it's it doesn't seem like an authentic sort of communist dude taking a picture of himself with a rifle. I don't even know what that would look like, I guess, because it's an odd thing to do. But the magazines are actually like one of them is Trotskyite and then one of them is like a pro-Stalin thing. And those guys, they hated each other. Like if you were a communist, you would not be with those two magazines. You would still, still, you know. Still. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I you would know better. Maybe some of you guys would know better. I than can me. provide some elaboration on that, Aaron. <laughs> I mean, I, I, no <laughs> problem. So that's I know the, about, whole, the go, go ahead. curiosity. 
with Oswald there is because like you said, you're absolutely right. Like Oswald is holding, I believe a copy of, I don't know. I think it's called the worker. I think the daily worker yes. changed, you know, changed his name all sorts of times. Incidentally for those San Francisco heads out there, uh, Mayor Willie Brown did do a fundraiser for the, uh, the uh, something I by that point, I think it was called like people's daily in, uh, in 1990. Uh, just to be clear, well, Mayor Willie Brown did that. So another weird little connection there. Anyways, it is very, very fucking weird that he would hold both those newspapers. And he also wrote letters to both the CPUSA and to the Socialist Workers Party, who were the the who put out the militant, the, the Trotskyite newspaper that he had. Uh, every time, like, yeah, I think he, I did it a couple of times. I think he did it when he moved to Dallas. And I think he did it when New Orleans too, applying to membership for both parties. It's extremely odd that he would be like, he would not, he would move to the Soviet Union and then try to join the Trotskyite parties in the 1950s. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh wait, yeah, you guys killed him? I cannot count this. This is insane. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's totally bizarre. You know, I, whether the photo is fake or not, I don't know. I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald, absolutely. I could absolutely see a world, world where D- George Damore and Shaw was like, dude, check this out. What would look very sick is if you had both of these photos of newspapers and the gun right there, because you know, you're like smart and you know, you know how to shoot a guy really fast. Um, but, but yeah, no, totally bizarre. And doesn't add another thing too, his mother visits him in prison and he doesn't say shit about that. She doesn't ask him about the shooting. Um, but, uh, but he's just like apparently very calm and just like asks about, I believe his daughter to get her some new shoes or something like that. Uh, it's, it's, you know, his mother, by the way, like, like Aaron said, I think last episode was, was pretty clear that she thought her son worked for the CIA, uh, especially, especially later in life. Um, but yeah, I mean, his behavior in, in jail really is just, it seems like a guy who's just sort of confused. And I think that calmness may be like, okay, like I've kind of got my bearings and they're going to get me out of here. Yeah. And the, when you mentioned the lawyer that he asks for, he asks for this guy whose last name is Abt, I believe, like A B T, mm-hmm. and he was he was famous for you know working in these controversial cases and also for representing communists, right? And so, yeah, one way to interpret that is 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 that is Oswald saying, "I'm not going to like you know blow my cover, please, you know, some, somebody somebody help me." And um, yeah, yeah. The, so that part is significant. Addition, initially, uh, additionally, he's being uh, in, you know questioned by Fritz and they uh, and this other officer named Roger Craig, who's famous uh, for discovering a different rifle first and saying that that the original rifle that was discovered wasn't a manly Oh Arcano. yeah, but um, that's a separate story. But he is told by Fritz that uh, the station wagon that he had been seen leaving in was belonged to Mrs. Payne. And he gets um, unhappy about this, or and he says, this belongs to Mrs. Payne. Don't drag her into this. And then after that, he sort of mutters, like, everyone will know who I am now, in a, in a dejected way, right? And this gets reported as though he is saying, everybody will know who I am now, and this is sort of considered to be like a statement of motive or something like that. But it was really in response mm-hmm. to the idea that Mrs. Payne had been brought into this and that somehow this will reveal who he really is, which suggests he had some idea of who the pains really were and uh, that he was not happy about this. So he seems to be trying to, you know, when he reaches out to John Hurt, the military intelligence fellow, when he's trying to ask for 
a lawyer associated with representing communists when he says that he's not happy that it might be exposed that he is uh, associated with Mrs. Payne, that this suggests that he was uh, aware that he had been up to now, up to that point, playing a role and that he had better stick to it. Or at least that was the decision that he made, that his best chance was to maybe stick to that role. And he miscalculated, but I, I think at that point his fate was overdetermined, uh, as we, as we'll see. Yeah. Well, and so as you mentioned, his fate is, his fate seems to be overdetermined and, you know, Ruby who had earlier made the decision to not kill Oswald in, in ostensibly a fit of rage, uh, having seen him go into the Dallas police department headquarters, uh, now decides that this is, this is the chance and um, as Oswald is being led out of the building, uh, as Aaron mentioned earlier, a room full of police officers, uh, Ruby, who is who has secreted a, a handgun into this room full of police officers, uh, steps out and uh, and shoots Oswald uh, and and kills him right there on the spot, essentially. Um, and you know, whatever whatever Oswald. Uh, thought about what was happening and, and, and decided that, um, you know, after saying that he was a patsy and then seeming, seeming to decide that his, his, you know, it seems like maybe he thought his fate was sealed. I think almost Mm -hmm. like he, he kind of went with the, you know, he tried to, he tried to say that he was a patsy and then, uh, and then decided that, well, I'm going to, I'm going to play my role right to the end. Uh, and, uh, like a lot of, like a lot of, uh, agency assets, uh, they don't have a long lifespan per se, and they uh, often end up dead at the hands of their employer, uh, which uh, when we get into uh, Ruby's background, I think is is pretty clearly what happened in this case. Yeah, to that I would just add that one of the things that allows this to happen in that Dallas police station is an anonymous threat on Saturday that about 100 men were going to take Oswald and kill him. And this is delivered to the police department. And as a result of this, they make the decision that they're going to protect Oswald, which they didn't do a very good job of. But they have a lot of cops in that room, but nobody really guarding the building. And they also have a lot of patrolmen reassigned to control traffic along Oswald's route, but nobody guarding the stairwell. And later, the House Select Committee determines that this was the route that Ruby took and that it was probably an inside job uh, in terms of letting him into the building. And um, this is, again, another example of the, I mean, the limited hangout that was the House Select Committee and that they do expose some important things, but in a way they help to uh, reinforce the Oswald did it uh, cover story. Mm -hmm. And Ruby was supposed to be actually, um, not, you know, Ruby or anybody, no one was supposed to actually be able to get close to Oswald. They marched in this formation of like a diamond with one person in front, person on the left, right. And then behind him, but the person in the front, for some reason, is very energetic, and he walks way ahead of the group. So there's <laughs> nobody in front of Oswald. Just uh, bad luck for Oswald. And so Jack Ruby comes up, and he comes yeah. up. He comes yeah. out when there's like a. If you've seen the video, there's like a horn that plays that seems. Yeah, it's really weird. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the the yeah. horn is kind of analogous to which we didn't cover, but it's also it's analogous to the umbrella thing in uh, in Dealey Plaza, mm. where like. There's just yeah. inexplicably this like signal before, you know, the bullets get start fucking fired 
and uh, somebody opening and closing an umbrella right by that uh, sign right before Kennedy gets shot, which seems to be sort of a green light. Um, there's a lame documentary on that by Earl, Earl Morris. Where, where, I was just going to say that Earl yeah. Morris came out and he was like, Oh, and I no. tracked down the umbrella guy. And it turned out it was a protest, which for some obscure thing, I, I can't even remember what it, it was for. It, because oh, of, um, I mean. the umbrella carried by, um, the, uh, Munich. Oh God, um, no! Is this a Neville the Chamberlain British thing? Neville Chamberlain, thank you. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God, man! And but he carried it like Neville Chamberlain carried it at his side. He didn't carry it over his yeah, like head. Walking stick. He yeah. exactly. It was like a walking stick, yeah. like all pedophiles no, do. I don't understand. That's ridiculous. No, but I encourage. You know what? It's so funny because that was like part of some fucking. New York Times, New York Crimes, crime job that they did a couple years back where they were covering the assassination. And they have Errol Morris come out and do his fucking thing. And he talks about, you know, it's all about the nature of the conspiracy where like everything that you think is crazy actually has a perfectly random and uh, improbable, but totally normal explanation. It's like, come on, man. Like The whole thing. Yeah, everyone should watch that. It's pretty funny to watch. I, I mean, if he'd come to a different conclusion, if he'd actually come to a different conclusion, there's no way the Times would have run it. You know, they would have been like, oh, this isn't yeah. what we don't Well, like they wouldn't this. have called Errol Morris in the first place, yeah. if you ask me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that does lead us down the path. Well, actually down the street to a seedy part of town with lots of neon and people in stockings to Jack Ruby. And if you think that we would be able to even touch Jack Ruby in the hour and a half that we've had so far. I mean, if you think we're going to be able to do that in the confines of a regular episode length, you are out of your fucking mind. Uh, we will be, we will be going to dance at the Ruby club very soon. Um, but not this episode, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we, we are unfortunately taking a trip in 1959 to tour the casinos with our good friend, Jack Ruby. Uh, so we actually won't be back with this, uh, well, actually, we will be back with it. I don't even know what I'm saying. We're not covering Jack Ruby this episode. We're covering Jack Ruby next episode. And then, of course, we got the Warren Commission. And, you know, there's a lot. There. The aftermath of the Kennedy assassination is equally as important to pay attention to as the buildup yeah. to, uh, to the Kennedy assassination. Because, as you remember, they killed him for a reason, right? Like, they didn't just, you know, they didn't just whack him and then, like, well, I guess LBJ is vice president. And we're all good, you know. Um, I mean, that. LBJ was vice president and they were all good, but there's a lot more to it than that. Um, so Ben and Aaron, thank you so much for joining us uh, for these uh, just hour and a half that we've recorded. We have not recorded two episodes today. That's crazy. Why would we ever do that? Why would we record for hours and hours and hours? Um, but always a pleasure to have you two uh, in the virtual studio. Um, well, fellas, lady, that sounds weird. Ladies yeah, and gentlemen, fellas and lady. <laughs> Um, also, we're still going, Brace, so I don't know why you're saying bye to me. I know. I, fucking, dude, I know. We're still going, Liz. <laughs> don't remind me. Um, I, let me do a fake goodbye, then. Let me just show the audience we're fake goodbye. Let me give a good fake goodbye to our treasured guests. Now I'm all mad. Let me give a good fake goodbye to our mad. treasured guests. Uh, ben and Aaron Good. That sounds like they're married. Aaron Good and Ben. <laughs> yeah, thank you. This was uh, this was great, and uh, I hope uh, your audience likes it. Yeah, always, always a pleasure to be here.
Well, that about solves it. He um, died. He died. <laughs> I'm glad. Guess- you know what I have to say? I'm glad that we've covered this topic because we finally settled once and for all whether or not Kennedy died. And yeah. I have to say, after hours of research, really Evidence days, there. weeks, we've deci- you know we've come to the conclusion it's true that He's- yes, he died. He passed away. It's over for him. I'll be real with you guys. I'm also about to pass away because I'm really hungry. This is what always happens. You get naked I'm and then you talk about it's, how We've been hungry. doing this for four. It's literally, we're nearing five hours. My name is Brace. I'm Liz. That was such, that was, all right, that was an offensively deep sigh. We're joined by producer Young Chomsky. Our podcast is called True and On, although by the time we finish, I finish saying the sentence, it will be 2048. No one will listen to podcasts anymore. So our little VR sex robot special uh, episode is, uh, fuck, I can't remember what I was saying. We're called True and On. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.